Well, here we are, uh, really the first, uh, the first part of a three-part kind of tri, I don't know what it's called, trifecta, tri, tri, I don't know, but three days, right? Thursday, Friday, Sunday. A important part of um, Jesus' life is, is, is the end part of it, right? And yet, I think about last year, we weren't here. And here we are celebrating together tonight. Isn't that awesome? Praise God. And Friday and Sunday, we get to be together. I think that's an important part because when we worship, it's not only God, giving God honor and glory and praise, which he truly deserves, our gratitude, our thankfulness, all of it. But it really is when we gather, we're also receiving something. Tonight you're going to receive something, I pray, from God himself. Through his word, through holy communion, you're going to receive his love and his blessing. And so tonight's the first part of that where we, we think and we mem- remember, we commemorate Jesus, his, his time with his closest followers in the upper room. In the Garden of Gethsemane, this prayer time, we remember that. And then on Good Friday, we remember why he died, why he was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And then, then on Easter Sunday, it's all about resurrection. It's all about life. But tonight, we focus um, on three things I want to focus on. Number one, we're going to read God's word. And we're going to be in, and if you, if you have an outline with you, you can turn that on the back there. It shares my outline. And just like any pastor, uh, I wasn't through with uh, my thoughts when I, when I made that outline because we're going to be in three places of Scripture, not two. So Matthew 26, we're going to be in John 13, and we're going to be in Mark 14. So you can put that as a little note. Matthew 26, John 13, Mark 14, to be ready to hear God's word and directly just have him speak to our hearts. And and, and the second thing we're going to do is we're going to examine how Jesus prepared for his death. And in a similar way, as as human beings, because we're talking about a lot about Jesus' humanity as as much as his divinity, uh, in a similar way, we, we do the same things when we're preparing for our own death. And then the third thing we're going to do, we're going to consider how Jesus felt about his impending death, about his coming death, and just realize, you know what, it's, it's, it's kind of the same way how we feel about our own death or, or our dying. So what words did you just hear me say like many times? Death. Right. I mean, that's really the focus of tonight and tomorrow prior to Easter. And I think death makes a lot of headlines, don't you? I mean, just think about it this year. Right? Death makes headlines. Whether it's, it's about the, the George Floyd case that just is coming up, right? It, right? Uh, because of violence uh, that we had. Or you remember all the protests we had this past year? And then COVID. I read a C, uh, NBC article and, and I read this, that COVID has taken as many lives as World War I and World War II combined. Wow. I didn't realize that. As I was reading, it said that, that the, the COVID deaths are the third leading, it says the third leading cause of death last year in 2020 behind heart disease and behind cancer. 500,000 lives in the United States alone. Wow. Well, how do you, how do you wrap your head around that? What, what's the number? Well, I would say this to you. Um, you could just say if you take the city of Atlanta and wipe it off, you know, the face of the United States, that's what we have. 
500,000. The city, Kansas City, Missouri, 500,000. There we go. I mean, if that puts it into perspective, that's about the population of, of, of deaths, 500,000. Death is just always before our eyes, isn't it? And what we read and what we hear. And so I thought what we do before we open God's word is just kind of lay a foundation. Lay a foundation of what exactly is death. What, what is death? Well, the scriptures teach that it, it's not an annihilation. And, and like we, we cease to exist. Like the material stuff that we're, that we're made of. That it's not what it is. The scriptures teach that death is a separation. It's a separation from our eternal souls with our mortal bodies. So that when we die, our bodies go to the, you know, the dust in the earth, to the ground, to the grave, resting there, awaiting a return with our souls. But then not our bodies go, our mortal bodies go down to the earth, but our souls go right to, directly to God. Instantaneously. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord right away. And that's good news. But separation is what what death is. We, as followers of Jesus, are immediately in the presence of God and Jesus. But for an unbeliever, they're separated from a holy God. They're with Satan and all his demons, and they're in torment and they're suffering, awaiting a time where their bodies would be connected to their souls and there would be a second death, the final death, the final separation ultimately from God. And here's what I want to do tonight is just kind of get this, I think, what our culture and what our society puts in front of us, that death is a natural thing. Oh, death, you know, everybody dies. It's natural. It is not natural. Can you get that between your ears right now? Death is not natural. It's unnatural. God did not intend for us to die, did he? He intended us to live forever, right? It's not when he created the universe, death wasn't a part of that. But when did that come about? It came about as a result of disobedience. The first human beings, right? Human beings that, that were created, Adam and Eve. It was because of their sinful disobedience, death comes. And for every generation after an Adam and Eve, that has been the case ever since, right? So death, while it's not natural, it's a horrible reality. Isn't it? It's a horrible reality. In fact, the Bible says it's our enemy. But for those who trust in Jesus, well, the Bible says we pass from death to life. So that's why the Bible uses many comforting words. Uses many comforting words to describe the death of a child of God. It uses words like this, being gathered to one's people. It's a departure or a departing in peace. It's to be with Christ. The Bible describes it as sleep and rest and passing from death to life, as I said. It talks about being precious and blessed. It even says gain. You remember the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians? For me to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. How can death be gain, though? Right? When a child of God passes from death, a son or daughter of God who has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of Jesus, death is gain. Because we are immediately in the presence of an almighty, a holy, a perfect God where he promises there is no more death, no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, 
The old order of things has passed away, the Bible says. The new has come. We're going to be renewed. Our bodies are going to be glorified, and we're going to live forever and ever and ever. There's not enough evers. I can't describe eternity. That's amazing. It's something that I look forward to. Psalm, Psalm 116 says this, precious in the sight of the, the Lord. Precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. It's a time to open up God's word, okay? Matthew chapter 26. Remember, we're going to go to John 13, 2 and Mark 14. But this is what we remember. This is what we commemorate, honor uh, the Lord Jesus as we, we gather. This event happened 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 20. The Bible says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. I'm going to pause there for just a minute. Why is Jesus reclining? Why is he with his closest friends? What's this evening all about? They're celebrating a Jewish feast. It's called what? Passover. It's important, the biggest the feast of the Jewish year. It's, it's about when they, they think about God's grace to the history of God's chosen people. So you imagine Jesus as the rabbi, as the teacher. He's telling the story. He's recounting. This is how God saved the chosen people Israel. Remember? You have to take a perfect lamb. You have to take the blood of the lamb and put it over your doorframe so that the angel of death would pass over the children of Israel, and they would be saved, but all the firstborn of the Egyptians would die. And you remember how God led the people of Israel out of slavery. They were in bondage out of Egypt by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And so they're listening to Rabbi Jesus saying all these things, how, how God parted the Red Sea through Moses, right, and all the enemies of, of them that were pursuing were drowned in the sea. And as they're eating this meal together, they're listening, and here's what they're doing. They're feeling a connection of how God has, has redeemed, has saved their people in the past, and they look forward to how they'll save his people uh, in the present and in the future, and they're feeling this connection is, hey, this is part of my extended family. It's one of the most special nights of the year, and so they're together. And you know what? Even 2,000 years later, I want to tell you that we are connected to that same history. The book of Ephesians says it this way. We are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. You see, we understand that God's long history of his chosen people, that includes us now. Not Jewish people, but Gentiles, all one united together, believing in a God that redeems that gives grace, and he does that every single day. And he, want to give, he wants to give that opportunity to everyone who listens to his word. Let's continue with verse 21. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You've said so. You see, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, 
Think about that. You're in this room, you're following Jesus, and he says, one of you will betray me. There's only two people who knew exactly what that meant. Jesus, who is all-knowing, and Judas, which the Bible describes Satan entered into Judas to do this thing. And yet, think about this. Each one of them said this, surely you don't mean me. Or in some translation, is it I? Surely you don't mean every. Isn't that interesting? Every single one of them said that. Why would they say that? Why, what were they thinking, do you think? Was it a terrible kind of self-knowledge? Each one of them knew, right, that there was something deep in their hearts that maybe just possibly could lead them to do something horrible like this, betray Jesus, God forbid. But who could swear? Who could swear they would never, ever be capable of something like that? The disciples are humble, yes. They knew themselves. They're concerned. And guess what? Even today, 2,000 years later, we ought to be concerned too, shouldn't we? Because when we think long and hard and honestly, when we examine ourselves and our lives, the many past sins that sometimes we dwell on, the guilt that we have, our thought life even now, we realize and come to the same kind of conclusion the disciples did. That we're capable of any sin. Would you agree to that? If any environment was just right, all the circumstances were in place, the temptations put in front of us, bam, anything could be possible. That's hard to consider if we would examine ourselves that way. The disciples, they didn't want to disappoint Jesus. They're anxious about the future. The same with us. We don't want to do that, yet surely you don't mean me, Lord. Is it I? I mean, talk about a bummer celebrating a Passover dinner, right? It might have spoiled their dinner a little bit. They're like, what is going on right now? What's going on? They're dreading what the next step, step's going to be. What's, what's happened? It's kind of unclear. You heard Steve read from John 14 and John 16 just to prepare our hearts. What's going on? He's saying some strange things right now. Remember, he's Jesus, right? He knows everything. He knows exactly when he's going to die. So let's go to John chapter 13. I'll take you there. It's still the upper room. It's still the Passover. It's still the conversation. John chapter 13. And it's happening at the Passover meal. John 13 beginning in verse 31. And it says this in 31. When he, Judas, was gone, Jesus said, my children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. And so as I was contemplating this text of Scripture tonight, it hit me. That Jesus is preparing here for his death. And what is he doing? He's declaring his last will and testament. He tells them he's leaving, right? He can't come with me. And we'll look closely. He's going to be declaring two things really to us as he gives away his life at his death. And I can imagine this. He's like an elderly grandfather, right? Who, who gathers all his children gathers the grandchildren around them, and he's speaking the last words of wisdom, declaring, can't you hear it? Listen to that verse again. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. 
So pay attention. Focus up. Remember my words. Oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit's going to help you recall them. You see, this is Jesus' last will and testament to his disciples and to us. And so we ought to remember, what's he saying here? What's truly Jesus trying to communicate as he prepares for death? It's kind of like a, for us, we're preparing a written will, right? I know uh, my wife and I, when our kids were young, we wanted to have a will. We wanted to, to have our wishes grant. You know, who's going to take care of our minor six children at the time? Who do we leave our possessions to? What are the instructions people want, right? Power of attorney, all that kind of thing. Jesus is doing the same thing, his last instructions. I mean, think about it. Rich people, they, they will their gold, their money, their stocks, their cars, whatever they have. What did Jesus own on earth? What did he own? Luke chapter 9, I love what, what Jesus says. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't amass any money or property on this earth, but as the second person of the Trinity, he owns it all anyway, right? But yet Jesus wills us two things far greater than earthly wealth and possessions. On this night, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he willed us his love. And this Thursday, it's called Mondi. Mondi meaning from the Latin, it goes back a long way, mandatum, which means command. Because on this night, Jesus says, a new command I give to you. What's that new command? That you love one another. That's not new. What's new? Just as I have loved you, that you also would love one another. That new command wasn't necessarily new. It was a law in the book of Leviticus. Remember Jesus, they were asked Jesus, what are the two greatest commands? Well, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? And love your neighbor as your what? As yourself, it wasn't you, but what's new? It's the love that flows from others, from this humble and sacrificial kind of love that Jesus has been teaching them. That's the kind of love. That's why it's new. It's not do this, do this, and you'll live. That's not, that's not the sort of love we're talking about, but that's because that's the cause of righteousness. You do this, and you'll be righteous. That's not it. This love is a result of righteousness. It's a result of what God gave, not a cause of it. 1 John explains it really well. 1 John chapter 4, the apostle writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Love is from God, not ourselves. It indicates that we've already been born again spiritually, that we might have the capability because the Spirit lives in us, Jesus lives in us. He gives that, us that power to love the way he wants us to love. That's more valuable than any property or money or any earthly inheritance we could have, isn't it? He gives us, he wills to us his love. And as I think about this, Jesus' command isn't completely new. It isn't. You remember how he just expounds upon all the commandments in Matthew chapter, I think it's 5. Think about this. He says, even if you look at somebody with lust in your eyes, man or woman, regardless, right, you're guilty of committing whatever commandment it is. The eighth commandment, adultery, right? If you look at somebody with, you have anger in your heart, you're guilty of murder. You don't need to swear anymore. Don't do it. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. He expounds upon that, just like he's doing in, in this commandment in John. He's improving it. This is this love command that Jesus, our Lord and Master, gives to us. And because we follow him, we want to listen. 
We want to do exactly what our Lord and Master has commanded. And so Christian bosses, right? When you lead a business, you want to love and you want to serve in this way. If you're a Christian parent, you're in charge of families, you want to do this. If we're a Christian working with somebody who's not following Jesus, an unbeliever, this is what we want to do. We want to serve them. We want to love them. He loved he willed us that love to give out. That's the first part. The second part that he would give to us, then, what's he willing to give away? His body and his blood. How does he do that? Back to Matthew chapter 26. Going to Matthew chapter 26, we're going to begin in verse 26, and we're going to read how he does, it, read how he does this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day, that day, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus, he doesn't have a a home to will to anyone. He didn't have a bank account. Yet he wills us so much more. So much greater is what we receive right here. His own body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. Because think about this. When we're forgiven of our sins, doesn't that mean we have eternal life? Doesn't that mean we have salvation? Think about this Passover meal, this intimate setting. There's going to be unleavened bread. That's what they do all the time. There's going to be cups of wine. That's there. But there's this new dimension, right? He's willing to us his body and his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And when he says, this is, well, this bread really is his body. This wine really is his blood. That's the new meaning. And it's, I can imagine they're like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about, Jesus? Just like we don't have an understanding. How can this bread? I, I don't know. It doesn't make sense in our minds. But guess what? If Jesus says it, then it's true. If he's the one that created the universe and he said, let there be light and it's still shining today, well, it is. If he's the one that can walk on water and heal and raise the dead, who might argue? Right? Are you with me? Awesome. I mean, he wills us his love. He wills us his body and blood. And every time we share that meal together then, we receive the assurance of forgiveness of sins. And it's a gift that keeps on giving and giving until the day that Jesus returns. So we've examined here Jesus preparing for his death. Talked about what he wills. But in Matthew 26, it records in verse 30, the next part. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You know what olive trees look like in the Mediterranean world? There's a picture of it. They sing this hymn that's part of what they do at the Passover. This Garden of Gethsemane, also called the Mount of Olives, where Jesus in the Bible says this, this was his usual place to pray. 
So the Bible says they, they go out there. In Mark chapter 14 then, as you look at this, hear these words. They went out to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. And then going a little farther, the Bible says in Mark 14, he fell to the ground, and this is what he prayed. If possible, that the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he says, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. See, this passage is recording for us how Jesus felt about his death. I'm going to ask you, have you ever come across a strong, brave, Christian, mature Christian who says, I'm not afraid to die? Have you ever come across one of those? And if, if you're being completely honest, you know, they're a rare breed, I think, because most of us, let's admit it, I'm scared. I'm scared. It's a little frightening. I mean, I worry a, a little bit that it's going to hurt, right? We think, we think of death, really, as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. We worry about that. But if this wasn't recorded for us, and I think it's, I'll say it this way, oddly comforting to know that Jesus felt a similar way about his coming death. He is distressed, he's sorrowful, the Bible says, he's troubled, and it's recorded for us. And it, so here it is, if the Son of God dreaded death, then I don't need to be ashamed of my own feelings and my dread over death. I mean, I can lean my whole weight of fear onto his shoulders, knowing that he is the one that understands truly that he's going to help me at that time when my time is at the end. That he'll be the one to come and comfort me. Because as Isaiah 53 says, he truly is a man of sorrows. He is acquainted with grief. He's the one who's ultimately going to take me and lead me past death to heaven with him. I don't know about you, but I sometimes pray, you know what, God? Jesus, would you come right now? Because my family, you know, they're saved. We're all ready to go. I, I don't want to die. Just come right now. Anybody ever pray that prayer? Okay, well, maybe you ought to start. I don't know. But no, when death comes, then that Holy Spirit and Jesus is going to be there for us to strengthen us because he was acquainted with this. His death involved quite a lot more than ours would. How so? Because he knew that when he was preparing for death, his death would have attached to it, experiencing the guilt and the shame and the sins of the whole world. He knew that the Father himself would reject him, that he would look his eyes not on him, that he would be abandoned, that the weight and the punishment of the sin of the world would be on him and he would experience the wrath of God. That's what we're going to go to tomorrow on Good Friday. But thankfully, our deaths are just going to be a small fraction of that emotional and spiritual pain and anguish that Jesus experienced. And then his words, not my will, but yours be done. Ones that we can consider 
right? Tonight, our feelings about our future death, we lay ourselves at the feet of Jesus and God's loving care. We trust his sovereignty. And so tonight on Monday, Thursday, we remember the past. Not just 2,000 years ago at Jesus' Passover, but even the history of God's people. We remember that. We connect it to the present, how it's still ongoing for us, his love and his blessing he's giving to us tonight. And we think about our future. The future that as a child of God, there will be no more death. There will be no more pain. There will be only perfect peace with God because of Jesus. So we're going to worship we're going to worship, but we're going to have communion first. And if I think I forgot to say this, we are celebrating Holy Communion. And so thank you, some of the hospitality team. If you forgot, like I almost forgot, the, the bread and, and, and the wine, please raise your hand. And they'll be, they'll be coming out and giving you those things. But here's what I want to do tonight. I want to take you to a place uh, in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, to prepare ourselves, and I'm kind of reading it out of order. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 has all the words of institution, what pastors speak over this, what Jesus spoke that same night. It says it right in the word of God. But, 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 but right after that, that's what I'm going to read first, verses 27 and 29. It gives us an opportunity to prepare our hearts. So here's what I want you to hear from 1 Corinthians 11. After we celebrate, by the way, Holy Communion, as, as Steve said earlier, the altar is going to be stripped, meaning the candle, the Christ candle is going to be going, the communion elements, the word of God, the cross, to indicate what happens after this Thursday night. Because after the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas betrays him with a kiss. The disciples all flee. Soldiers take them. They mock him. They beat him. They spit on him. They put a scarlet robe over him. He's stripped of his basically naked dying on the cross, right? And so that's what that is about as we worship. We think about that. And we think about what we're receiving tonight. Here's the words from Scripture. Verse 27. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Would you close your eyes and would you bow your heads? And just as we come to receive God's love and blessing in this meal, would you examine your hearts and just in the openness of your heart and mind to God, would you speak to him the burden that you have? think about it this way when I read the scriptures it says whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner what's a worthy manner I'll tell you what a worthy manner is it means you would be so humble to say I need a savior that means I have fallen short in thought word and deed 
coming to God in a worthy manner also means believing that when you receive this, you receive forgiveness. You receive a washing. You're clean. You're forgiven. You're made right with God. You have peace with God. That's what it means to eat and to drink in a worthy manner. Know that your sins are forgiven. For Jesus' sake, God calls you to be righteous. Amen? So then let me read these words from verse 23 to 26. St. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And if you want to get your communion elements out. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So brothers and sisters in Christ, would you take and eat the body of our Lord Jesus Christ given unto death for you. Take and drink the blood of your Lord and Savior Jesus shed on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus wills us his love and his body and blood for you. Amen.